0: Okay, turn with me to Matthew 9. We're looking at the passage 27 to 34. We'll finish it up and then move on into the next section today. Uh, Last week we looked at verses 27 through 31 uh, at the miracle of sight that Jesus gave to these two blind men. And not only sight but salvation. And this week we are going to look at the miracle of sound in verses 32 and 33. Uh, So let's start, read the passage, and then go on through. It says, As they were going out, a mute, demon-possessed man was brought to him. After the demon was cast out, the mute man spoke, and the crowds were amazed and were saying, Nothing like this has ever been seen in Israel. James Montgomery Boyce points out that uh, this passage is all about speaking. Uh, In verse 32, the demon-possessed man could not speak. In verse 33, the man is healed and speaks. And then the crowd speaks about Jesus. And in verse 34, the Pharisees speak against Jesus. And back in verse 31, those who were healed spoke testimonies for Jesus uh So, this miracle truly focuses on people speaking in regard to Jesus, whether about him about him, against him, or for him uh, so then these as these two formerly blind men leaving the house, a mute demon possessed man is brought to Jesus. the word used here, which is translated mute, is also translated as deaf in matthew eleven five Uh, That's because those who are totally deaf from a young age most of the time are unable to speak either. Uh, Deafness was very common. There were those with congenital defects just like we have today. Uh, Also, just as children today get ear infections, which if left untreated can affect their ability to hear. Uh, So too in that society where medicine was rudimentary uh, and there were no antibiotics. There were many deaf people. Uh, in addition, according to various scholars, they had a problem during those days with desert sand blowing into their ears and getting stuck in the earwax that was deep in their ears, and they just couldn't clean it out, and so they just came, became deaf by their ears being stopped up. Uh, but this man's deafness wasn't any of those things. His deafness and mutism was specifically identified as being caused by a demon. Uh, so we see from scripture it's possible for demons to affect people in a physical way. And so one or more had affected this man. But Jesus has power over the kingdom of darkness. So we found that in verse 33, or we find there that after the demon was cast out, the mute man spoke. Uh, the passage doesn't even tell us how Jesus did it. Uh, there's no fanfare about his power and authority because it's such a simple thing for him. He casts the demon out. The man could speak. And the, man, the passage says nothing about the man's faith. Uh, we don't know if he knew what was going on. He's He is just healed, that's all. Uh, there's nothing about his faith, nothing about his salvation. It seems this miracle is nothing more than a physical healing and not a spiritual healing. But the focus of this miracle is not so much the healing of the man, as it is the response of the crowd and the Pharisees to it. Uh, That's what Matthew wants us to see. He wants us to see how the crowd and the Pharisees both missed seeing the significance of Jesus' miracles as signposts that pointed to him as the Messiah. Uh, The British historian John Haywood has said, quote, the problem with humanity is this. Humanity stands at the crossroads and all of the signposts have fallen down, in quote. Uh, for Matthew, however, uh, as well as every other writer of the New Testament, humanity's needed spiritual signposts are very much in place. And they are entirely reliable. Uh, the problem with humanity is not with the signposts but with those who ignore or reject the signposts that God has made abundantly evident. Uh, Romans 1.20 tells us, For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, both his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made so that they are without excuse. And among those signposts are the miracles that demonstrated Jesus' divine power and messiahship, his power to save, his power, his right to rule. Uh, in addition to demonstrating who Jesus was, his miracles also served to separate those who accept him from those who reject him. Uh, for some people, his miracles were a sign of divine power and glory that drew them to him. For others, they were simply supernatural marvels by a good man who had no claim on their lives. And still, for others, They were an affront to religious propriety that drove them even further from the Lord. These responses to Jesus were first described by Simeon uh, when Joseph and Mary took the infant Jesus to the temple to present him to the Lord and for Mary to make an offering of purification after giving birth to a child. And Simeon, who was an old man at that time, had been waiting for the arrival of the Messiah and now... When he saw the baby Jesus, he proclaims to God, Now, Lord, you are releasing your bondservant to depart in peace according to your word. For mine eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light of revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people Israel. And then he tells Mary, Behold, this child is appointed for the rise and fall of many in Israel, and for a sign to be opposed. Uh, In other words, he says, this child will become the dividing line to determine the ultimate destiny for every individual. Some will reject him and fall. Others will receive him and rise again. It's always been that way in God's economy. There are those who are planted like a tree by the river of waters that bring forth fruit, and then there are those who are like chaff Uh, there are the godly and there are the ungodly there there are only two categories of people the righteous and the unrighteous and when Jesus came he affirmed this truth in Luke 6 if you look over there for a moment in Luke's account of the Sermon on the Mount that Steve has been preaching through it says beginning in verse 20 blessed are you who are poor for yours is the kingdom of God "'Blessed are you who hunger now, for you shall be satisfied. "'Blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. "'Blessed are you when men hate you and ostracize you "'and insult you and scorn your name as evil "'for the sake of the Son of Man. "'Be glad in that day and leap for joy, "'for behold, your reward is great in heaven. "'For in the same way their fathers used to treat the prophets.' But woe to you who are rich, for you are receiving your comfort in full. Woe to you who are well fed now, for you shall be hungry. Woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. Woe to you when all men speak well of you, for their fathers used to treat the false prophets in the same way. Those who are blessed are the saved, and those who upon whom God pronounces woes are the unsaved. Uh, so Jesus is, affirms this dividing line, blessed and cursed. Uh, we already saw back in chapter seven of Matthew's gospel that there were those. There are those who enter the narrow gate and are blessed, and there are those who enter the broad gate and are damned. Uh, there are those who build their house upon the rock and it stands, and there are those who build their house on the sand and it collapses. There are those who try to hold on to their life and they lose it those who try to lose their life and in so doing they find it all the way through the gospel record we find that Jesus offers himself as a dividing line in Matthew 10 32 he says everyone who confesses me before men I will confess him before my father who is in heaven in other words if you identify yourself with Jesus Christ God will identify with you as one of his own but verse 33 Whoever denies me before men, I will also deny him before my father who is in heaven. And then he says, do not think I came to bring peace on the earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I came to set a man against his father and a daughter against her mother and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a man's enemies will be the members of his household. And it goes on and on like that throughout Matthew and the rest of the gospels. The apostle Paul picks up on this same concept that the entire race, uh, human race, is divided into believers and unbelievers, into hell-bound souls and heaven-bound souls. Uh, The blessed and the cursed, the rewarded and the damned, and the dividing line is their faith or lack of faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And in 2 Corinthians 2, 14-16, he writes, But thanks be to God who always leads us in triumph in Christ and manifests through us the sweet aroma of the knowledge of him in every place, For we are a fragrance of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing, to the one an aroma from death to death, for the other an aroma from life to life. In other words, there's a certain fragrance that a Christian has, a certain aroma that represents God. We touch the world, uh, as it were, with the fragrance of God. Uh, And both the saved and the lost receive the fragrance from our lives. Uh, it's that is our living testimony and our verbalized testimony, but for some it's an aroma from death to death, but to others an aroma from life for life to life. In other words, Paul is saying that we who are Christians are radiating that reality to the saved and to the perishing, to the perishing who are already dead in their rejection. The more they hear the gospel, the deeper their lostness becomes. Thus, we are an aroma from death to death. The writer. Of Hebrews says, how much severe punishment do you think he will deserve who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has regarded as unclean the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has insulted the spirit of grace. In other words, the whole rejection, the constant rejection of the gospel deepens their deadness. As we live and preach, we become to the unbeliever an aroma from death to death a compounding of their doom, and their hell is all the more terrible the more times they have rejected the truth. On the other hand, as we preach the gospel to those who are already alive in Christ, it's an aroma from life to life. Uh, It's the expanding, exploding, increasing, enriching understanding of the fullness of life in Christ. Uh, So getting now to Matthew's passage on the response of the crowd and the Pharisees to this series of miracles that Jesus has done in order to show them that he was the Messiah sent from God who was their rightful king, we see here that there are two superficially different but basically similar responses. Let's begin with the response of the crowd in the last half of verse 33. It says, after the demon was cast out, the mute man spoke and the crowds were amazed and were saying, nothing like this has ever been seen in Israel. The crowd says, this is without explanation, the greatest display of power ever in the history of Israel. Remember, they're putting this miracle on a higher level than all the miracles that God performed through Moses, such as the plagues in Egypt, parting the Red Sea and drowning the Egyptian army. Providing water and manna in the wilderness. Uh, In their minds, it's bigger than making the walls of Jericho fall down. Uh, Then Elijah calling down fire from heaven. Then Elisha raising a child back to life. They remembered all of those, but they say this is the greatest display of divine power in the history of the nation of Israel. And so the text says the crowds were amazed. That word translated amaze is a very comprehensive word. It means to marvel, to be astonished, to wonder in amazement. One Greek lexicon states that it it is the response of those who experience something that transcends all human uh, possibilities. Uh, In other words, there's no human answer to what occurred, and so they were astounded. It was breathtaking to see the things he was doing. It's incomprehensible to their human minds. They're shocked. They're in awe. The word includes fear and terror and all, such as back in chapter 8, verse 27, when the disciples in the boat, uh, during the storm were more afraid when Jesus stopped the storm than what they were when the storm was threatening to take their life, uh, because they knew they were in the boat with God and when you know you're in the same boat with God and he can see everything in your heart that's a little terrorizing uh, so the people are literally astounded Luke nine forty three says and they were all amazed at the greatness of God and everyone was marveling at all he was doing uh, is more than their minds could conceive uh, they marveled they're fascinated so much so that eventually in Matthew 21 verses 8 and 9, they could only make one conclusion. As he entered Jerusalem on the Monday preceding his death, it says most of the crowds spread their coats on the road and others were cutting branches from the trees and spreading them on the road. The crowds going ahead of him and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, Hosanna in the highest. They're so enthralled with him that they're praising him as the Messiah. By Friday of the same week, the crowd decided their religious religious leaders were right, and uh, Jesus was going against the established Judaism, that his message was a threat to their safety and security. And so by the time you get to chapter 27, they're screaming for him to be crucified and for Barabbas to be released, a murderer to be released. That's how it is with fickle mobs. Theirs was a superficial fascination. It's like John 6. Remember what happened there? He fed 15,000 or so of them with a boy's lunch, and they followed him looking for more free food. They weren't really interested in what he said. They liked him for his miracles. They were fascinated. There was a certain awe. Even, even though there was a certain amount of fear involved, if you could keep him at arm's length, everything was OK. Uh, and so there is just nothing more than fascination. It's, it's like watching a movie that frightens you, but it's so fascinating that you won't turn off the television. Uh, you feel like you just have to see what's going to happen next. Many people have been in awe of Jesus who didn't know him. I mean, Pilate said he was innocent of anything deserving of death, but in a short time later he authorized his crucifixion. Uh, some other people who will spend eternity in hell have said some very good things about Jesus. Uh, the French philosopher Denis Diderot said Jesus was the unsurpassed, unsurpassed one of human history. Napoleon said he was the emperor of love. D.F. Strauss, the liberal German theologian, said he was the highest model of religion. The English philosopher and economist John Stuart Mill called him the guide of humanity. William Lecky, the Irish historian, said he was the highest pattern of virtue. James Martineau, the English theologian and philosopher, called him the divine flower of humanity. French historian Joseph Rennan said he was the greatest among the sons of men. Theodore Parker, a American util- Unitarian clergyman, referred to Jesus as the youth with God in his heart. Uh, the Welsh social reformer Robert Owen says he was the irreproachable one. And then, of course, there's the well-known rock opera from 1971 by Andrew Lloyd Webber and Tim Rice that refers to him as Jesus Christ Superstar. People have thrown around a lot of those kind of sentiments about him. But they all fall short of saving faith. Uh, Even in his own day, they said, what kind of man is this? Uh, We don't have a category for him. Even today in the fiery debates over homosexuality and abortion, people throw around Jesus' name, uh, applauding him as someone who in their thinking is all warm and fuzzy, all sweetness and love, who never had anything confrontational to say about anything so how dare you invoke biblical standards of righteousness in those debates how can you claim to be a Christian if you don't follow that same pattern of Jesus every time I hear that argument there's one thing I know about the person espousing that claim that is they they've never actually read the Bible Uh, they're only parroting what they've heard some false teacher say about Jesus. Someone who picks and chooses what verses he or she wants to quote to make their point. As long as Jesus can be kept, as I said, sort of at arm's length, and as long as his demanding and confrontational teachings are ignored or denied, he's often acceptable to the world. Uh, But when he accuses of sin and demands repentance and submission, the world turns away. Uh, when a man's need for salvation is preached and Jesus' claims of lordship are pressed, that's another matter to the world. Uh, those who once praised him become his critics. Those who once marveled at him become his enemies. People will often give the highest praise to Jesus, even acknowledge his divinity and perfection, so long as no mention is made of his condemning to hell the liar. Murderer, adulterer, homosexual, thief, and every other sinner who refuses to repent and receive him as Lord and Savior. So the crowd is marveling at his miracle of casting out the demon from this man. But look at what the Pharisees are saying. Verse 34. But the Pharisees were saying, He cast out the demons by the ruler of the demons. That statement tells us they're already suspicious of Jesus. (laughs) Rather than being amazed, like the crowds, they're critical and accusatory. They can't deny the fact of the miracle. So they choose to deny the source. They wouldn't admit that he was from God and was demonstrating divine power. Instead, they declared him to be an agent of Satan who was casting out demons by Satan's power. Uh, In other words, they're saying he's, he's Satan's agent, and Satan is using him to deceive you into thinking he's from God by having him cast out demons. They're, they're so committed to getting rid of Jesus that even when they saw the miracle, miracles, they said they're done by Satan's power. No wonder Jesus said if they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be persuaded even if someone rises from the dead. Uh, later on in chapter 12, Jesus exposed the faultiness of their logic by telling them that any kingdom divided against itself is laid waste and any city or house divided against itself will not stand. If Satan cast out Satan, he's divided against himself. How will his kingdom stand? So the hard hearts and the anger of the Pharisees led them to conclude that Jesus was Satan's agent. And so that's what they told the people. You know, truth cannot be contradicted with truth it can only be denounced with falsehood. And so that's what the Pharisees did. And that illustrates an important point. When an unbeliever is determined not to believe, no fact and no reason, no matter how obvious and convincing, will enlighten him. The person who's sold out to darkness refuses to recognize the light, even when it's blindingly close. Uh, And the person who praises Jesus but ignores his pleas to come to him is just as damned as the person Who defiantly denounces and rejects him? Uh, Any response to Jesus other than the response of repentance and faith Amounts to rejection and it results in damnation Well that brings us to the end of the the two miracles, but the chapter doesn't end there Uh, instead it moves on, but before we move on, let me pause and see if there's any comments or questions on anything about this particular miracle or what I've said. Yes. These the the um healing of the blind and the um, the death. These happen within minutes of each other. Yes. Right? And so yes. The, the crowd um, is reacting to not just the death but the. Blind too, Mm -hmm. in combination, the healing of the blind and those things have never been seen before. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yep. Okay. All right. Well, let's move then into the next section, verses thirty-five to thirty-eight. Let's read it first. Jesus was going through all the cities and villages teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every kind of disease, every kind of sickness. Seeing the people, he felt compassion for them because they were distressed and dispirited like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, The harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Therefore, beseech the Lord of the harvest to send out workers into his harvest. At this point, Matthew has really concluded the section on Jesus' verification of his divine authority and messianic credentials. In chapter 10, he's going to focus on Jesus' commissioning and training the 12 disciples. Uh, So as Matthew wraps up chapter 9, he adds in this passage as sort of a bridge to connect the main body of chapters 8 and 9 with chapter 10. It, it kind of brackets the entire Galilean ministry. If you look back at chapter 4, verse 23, it says, Jesus was going throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, and healing every kind of disease and every kind of sickness among the people. And now here in verse 35 of chapter 9, it basically says the same thing. Jesus was going through all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every kind of disease and every kind of sickness. So Matthew puts it there as a kind of bracket uh, to put in context around the Sermon on the Mount and all of the miracles that he has done. This was the essence of his Galilean ministry. He is, in a sense, summarizing Jesus' public ministry in Galilee before he begins focusing on training the Twelve. This text marks a significant transition in Jesus' ministry. Up until this point, the Twelve had simply been followers and listeners of uh, to Jesus. They went with him and they observed him, uh, but they didn't actively participate in ministry with him. Uh, and so just before telling us about how he commissioned and sent out these men, Matthew summarizes Jesus' ministry and his compassion for the people who were without a shepherd because they were being led by false shepherds. And so as we go through this verses, we're going to see three points, uh, all of which describe Jesus' approach to ministry to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. They are, number one, his actions, number two, his motives, number three, his plan, Uh, So let's begin with his actions there. Verse 35 tells us that he was going through all the cities and villages, teaching uh, in the synagogues, proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, healing every kind of disease, every kind of sickness. So it says he was going through, and that verb is an active verb. It's the idea of continual, unceasing effort. He was constantly going through all the cities and villages. Uh, It was a nonstop ministry. As we saw in chapter 4, verse 23, these were the cities and villages in Galilee, the northern part of the nation. Josephus, the historic, Jewish historian of that time, tells us that at the time of Jesus, there were about 200 cities and villages in the region of Galilee, which was 40 miles wide and 70 miles long. Uh, just as an aside, uh, the difference between a city and a village was whether or not the town had a wall. Um, If you had a wall, you were a city. Uh, If you didn't have a wall, you were a village. Uh, so, So whether it was a city or a village, he's traveling around all of them. Now, how many people lived in that area is a strong dispute, but only because Josephus made a wild and unsubstantiated claim stated Uh, Stating that during that time, I'm quoting, the cities were numerous and the multitude of villages everywhere crowded with men owing to the fertility of the soil so that the smallest of them contains above 15,000 inhabitants. So some theologians simply do the math and they say, well, that means there were 3 million people living in Galilee when Jesus was there. Uh, Let me just say, I don't buy that and I'll explain why. Josephus may have been talking about the four major cities when he said the smallest was 15,000 but it's more likely it was simply a wild exaggeration on his part. Here's why I think that's the case. You see if you combine Pinellas County, Hillsborough County, Manatee County, and Sarasota County here in the Tampa Bay area, you would have an area about the same size as Galilee. And you have a population, would be, of that those four counties, is 3.3 million. You know how crowded those four counties are. Uh, If Galilee had 3 million inhabitants, it would have been uh, a large metropolitan area, but it wasn't. The Jews in Jerusalem and Judea thought of Galilee as Hicksville. Uh, It was the backwoods. Uh, so there was no way that there were that many people living there. Uh, Dr. Ernest Masterman was a British medical missionary surgeon who lived in Palestine, as Israel was known then, uh, from 1892 to 1914 uh, when World War I started. Uh, he then returned to England, but after he retired from the British Medical Service in 1934 at the age of 67, he returned to Palestine, again served as a medical missionary there until his death in 1943. So he was a man who was deeply committed to both Christ and the Jewish nation and its people. Uh, he wrote a book in 1908 titled The Biblical World, uh, and in that book he included a chapter titled Galilee in the Time of Christ. And in it, he refutes Josephus' statement quite well based on examination of the ruins of the towns and villages of that area. He concludes that the real number was probably 200 to 250,000 people. But if you're very generous with the evidence, you might get as high as 400,000. Those are far more likely to be accurate figures than the proposed number from Josephus' wild claims. So there were a lot of small villages and cities that were scattered all over what was very rural Galilee, and Jesus was constantly moving through them, and Matthew says he's doing three things, verse 35. What are they? Teaching in their synagogue, proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, and healing every kind of disease, every kind of illness. So let's take a look at these three elements of Jesus, Galilee, and ministry. First of all, teaching in their synagogues. What does that involve? Well, wherever there were at least ten Jewish men, they could form a synagogue, a place to gather together to worship and socialize. The synagogue was the center of Jewish community life. It was a place of worship. It was the town hall. It was the local court. It was everything. Uh, It was the central meeting place in the community. Now, the synagogue was kind of a late addition to Judaism. It didn't come about until the Babylonian captivity. Uh, Up until then, all of their worship had been focused on the temple. But when they were taken out of their country and the temple was destroyed and they went into captivity for those 70 years in Babylon, wherever there was a group of Jews big enough to have at least 10 men, They would meet together, and so they formed the synagogues or assemblies. And since the Jews have never rebuilt the temple, they have them to this day. Uh, Now, that hasn't stopped some of them from calling their synagogue a temple, uh, but they recognize that it isn't actually a temple. Uh, There's only one place the temple can be, that's Jerusalem. So all the Jewish assemblies that you see are synagogues. In our city and in all the cities of the world where the Jewish people are, whenever you get ten men together, you can have a synagogue, and so they're all over the place. I was looking at a map of our area, and from north Dunedin to southern Clearwater, there are no less than seven synagogues. Uh, And in the time of Jesus in Galilee, there were synagogues in all of these little towns and villages. They They were usually built on a hill, or if there wasn't a hill, They were built on the highest spot in town, but if there wasn't a high spot, they would build them by a river. Very often they left the top open, uh, as much of the temple was, and so they could look up to heaven as a part of their worship. Uh, They normally identified their synagogue by a tall pole that stood out in front, much like a steeple on a church building identifies it as a church to those passing by. So you could always tell where the synagogue was. Any Jew who was a stranger in town could just follow his way to the tall pole, and he would be at their synagogue. Uh, Members of the congregation would meet together uh, for worship every Sabbath, as well as the second and fifth days of the week, every week. They also held their many feast festivals and high holy days there. Uh, Their services were very simply structured. They began with what they call thanksgivings or blessings, much as we might begin with singing hymns and praises. They would sing of the Lord's blessings, give the spoken testimonies of thankfulness for what he'd done. That was followed by a prayer, which was concluded with a congregational amen. Then a prescribed reader would stand up and read from the Law of Moses, Uh, one of the five books of the Torah, uh, also known as the Pentateuch. It would be read in Hebrew, uh, the original language of its writing, and then translated by the translator into Aramaic, which was the common speech of that day. Uh, That would then be followed by the reading of a passage from one of the prophets, which would also be read in Hebrew and translated into Aramaic. Uh, There would then be an expositional sermon or exhortation, Followed by a benediction and a final amen from the people. Jews always thought of the synagogue as a place of teaching and instruction. Uh, they came together to learn. They also saw it as a court of law. Uh, the Jews, those Jews who lived in other countries or who lived in occupied Israel under the authority of occupying armies uh, from time to time in their history, uh, would exercise whatever authority had been granted to them by the government. Mm. For example, in Matthew 10, verse 17, Jesus says, But beware of men, for they will hand you over to the courts and scourge you in their synagogues. Uh, In other words, the the synagogue leadership would render a judicial verdict against those who followed Christ, and they would carry out the punishment right in their synagogue. The synagogues became public schools uh, for the training of boys in the Talmud. Uh, which was the collection of rabbinical rules, regulations, and traditions. Uh, the synagogues also became theological schools. <clears throat> uh, they, the synagogue affairs were administered by ten elders of the synagogue. Three of them were called the rulers of the synagogue, uh, who also acted as judges. The fourth was called the angel of the assembly, which is the leader of the others. Uh, one was the interpreter, who translated... Uh, from the Hebrew into the Aramaic. One ran the theological school, and the other four handled all the various administrative tasks associated with the assembly's meetings, festivals, celebrations, and so forth. In other words, they had divisions of responsibility as elders. But the primary role of the synagogue was to teach and instruct in the scriptures. Uh, The Jewish historian Philo, uh, who lived in Alexandria, Egypt, at the time of Christ, uh, wrote that, quote, synagogues were mainly for the detailed reading and exposition of Scripture. End quote. So that's important. I mean, the first time we hear about expository teaching of the Word in Scripture is where? Anybody know? Where's the first time? How Would you believe me if I told you it's Nehemiah 8? Verses 7 and 8. When the people returned from the Babylonian captivity, Ezra the high priest read the law to the assembled congregation and were told that the other priest explained the law to the people while the people remained in their place. They read from the book from the law of God, translating to give the sense so that they understood the reading. Wow. That's expository preaching and teaching. We read the text. We explain the text so that you can understand the text. Uh, And that same commitment to the exposition of Scripture continued with righteous Jews throughout their history. In Acts 17, the Apostle Paul finds his way to the little town of Berea. And it says that he went there to the synagogue of the Jews. He gave them the word. It says in verse 11, They received the word with great eagerness, examining the Scriptures daily to see whether these things were so in other words that was what a synagogue was all about it was for the searching studying and understanding of the scriptures we have people who come to lakeside from other churches who yes where would they allow someone who was a stranger to come in and to or to share it wasn't just someone who was a stranger it had to be a rabbi Yes, mm-hmm. yeah. Sat at the train, seating, seating, sitting at the feet of Gamaliel. So he, others knew of him as a rabbi? or did He, come, it, it, they would, he would have worn the, the, the shawl that identified him as a rabbi. Okay. But we have people who come to us, to come to Lakeside from other churches, and they say things like, I've never heard this kind of teaching before. All you guys do is get up and read the word and explain the word and apply the word. Yep, that's all we do. Uh, And that's the way it should be. That's the pattern that God's word gives us. And so that's why we do what we do. Uh, I recognize that many preachers give up and give you what J. Vernon McGee once described as sermonettes given by preacherettes that produce Christianettes. Um, (laughs) In other words, they're short little messages that are 15 to 20 minutes long filled with shallow commentary on whatever issue the pastor happens to think is important with very little connection to the scripture and they do nothing to help you grow into conformity with the character and image of Jesus Christ. Our goal here is to teach you the word in an in-depth manner so that when you walk out, you know what the scripture means and how it applies to your life. And that whole process of the exposition of Scripture began in the synagogues back in biblical times. Now, when the sermon was given on any given day, it could be given by any leading member of the congregation who was erudite and knowledgeable in the Scripture. He would stand up and give the sermon. But if, perchance, there happened to be a visiting dignitary, visiting rabbi, it was proper and customary to let that rabbi preach and give the sermon. That was what was called the freedom of the synagogue. Uh, Both Jesus and Paul took advantage of that privilege, which was instrumental in the spreading of the gospel in the first century. So Jesus travels around Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, expositing the word of God, and in his case it was direct application. Uh, And they didn't always like his interpretation at all. Uh, The folks in his own hometown synagogue, The synagogue he had attended his whole life growing up. Tried to kill him for his message. That was only one incident. We don't know how many other times he had to escape with his life. But our text here in Matthew 9.35 says he went through all the cities and villages teaching in their synagogues. There's a second element to Jesus' ministry and that was he was proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom. The word translated proclaiming means to herald, to make a public announcement, to make a proclamation. He wasn't just teaching in the synagogues. He was also out on the street corners, on the hillsides, by the Sea of Galilee, on the roadways, on the fields, wherever he went proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom. This is the more evangelistic aspect of his ministry. Teaching in the synagogues was the more instructional explanatory aspect proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom was the more evangelistic side of his outreach to the Jews this was his outreach to those who were outside of the religious culture they would have been the sinners, the irreligious the Jews who were marginal in their commitment and his message was always the same good news that's what the word gospel means Uh, good news about what about the kingdom Uh, the Jews had waited long for the kingdom And now the good news was that the kingdom was within their grasp. This was not the exposition of the Old Testament as he was doing in the synagogue. This was the proclamation of the New Testament. This was the unfolding of the mysteries which had been hidden from people in times in the past. This was the new covenant, the new revelation, the proclamation of the kingdom. This was the new revelation about God's plan of redemption. He wasn't just proclaiming a future kingdom when he was preaching the kingdom he was calling people to believe in himself and the moment anyone believes in Christ he enters the kingdom Paul says in Colossians 1:13, he rescued us from the dominion of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son it's an instant transaction you're in the kingdom if you're a Christian and Christ mm-hmm. is the king he rules our lives we are his subjects and so the kingdom can be entered now that's why he talked about a narrow gate. It refers to the rule of Christ and the reign of Christ here and now as well as then and there. So he was preaching the kingdom and it was available to all who would believe and receive and that provided and in that in that kingdom there were numerous blessings. So Jesus has a twofold ministry. He was teaching and expositing the Old Testament. He was giving its proper understanding, speaking of its fulfillment, and on top of that, he was proclaiming the new covenant, the unfolding of revelation that had never been known before in his proclamation. That point to the importance, the point to the importance of doing both of those, it points to the importance of doing both of those together. You must have both the exposition of the word of God, and you must go out into the highways and the byways and proclaim the message of the gospel of the kingdom. Uh, the third element of Jesus' ministry is that both of those speaking ministries are verified by his miracles. At the end of verse 35 says he was healing every kind of disease and every kind of sickness. And that's the place of Jesus' miracles, third place. Because they're not the main issue. They were only God's way of affirming the validity of his teaching, the Old Testament, and his proclamation of the gospel of the kingdom. The great Bible scholar B.B. Warfield once said quote when our Lord came to earth he drew heaven with him the signs which accompanied his ministry were but the trailing clouds of glory which he brought from heaven which is his home quote Uh, it's like the cloud of dust that follows behind a galloping horse on a dusty road Uh, the clouds of glory were his miracles that came trailing along with Jesus and affirmed his message Uh, He proved that the kingdom was at hand. How? Because all of the miracles he performed were but samples of what the Messiah would do when the kingdom comes and there was no way to refute them. As I said before, earlier, the the Pharisees never denied his miracles. They only denied the source of them because they were undeniable. They were overwhelming in their number and their nature. Uh, Dr. Paul Brand, who I have mentioned to you previously, was a doctor who worked with lepers in India and one of the foremost authorities in the world on leprosy and he wrote the following about Jesus in his book Fearfully and Wonderfully Made. He says I think about I think back on how Jesus acted while inhabiting a human body on earth he reached out his hand and touched the eyes of the blind the skin of the person with leprosy the legs of the cripple When a woman pressed against him in a crowd to tap into the healing energy she hoped was there, he felt the drain of that energy, stopping the noisy crowd and asking, who touched me? I sometimes wondered why Jesus so frequently touched the people he healed, many of whom must have been unattractive, obviously diseased, unsanitary, smelly. With his power, he easily could have waved a magic wand. In fact, a wand could have would have reached more people than a touch. He could have divided the crowd into affinity groups and organized his miracles, paralyzed people over there, feverish people over there, people with leprosy there, raising his hands to heal each group efficiently in mass. But he chose not to. Jesus' mission was not chiefly a crusade against disease, but rather a ministry to individual people, some of whom happened to have a disease. He wanted those people, one by one, to feel his love and warmth and his full identification with them. Jesus knew he could not readily demonstrate love to a crowd, for love usually involves touching." He went on to illustrate this by telling about his parents' ministry as missionaries in India. He writes, I look at the impact my parents had. Although they went to India to preach the gospel, by living in tactile awareness of people's needs, they began to respond on several levels. Within a year, they were involved in the fields of medicine, agriculture, education, evangelism, and language translation. Their perception of needs determined the form their love assumed. My mother and father worked for seven years in India before anyone converted to Christianity. And in fact, the first conversion came as a direct result of their healing love. Villagers would often abandon their sick outside our home, and my parents would care for them. Once when a Hindu (coughs) priest was dying, of influenza, he sent his own frail, sickly nine-month-old daughter to be raised by my parents. None of his swamis would care for the sick child. They would have let her die. But my parents took her in, nursed her to health, and adopted her as their own. I gained a stepsister, Ruth, and my parents gained an unexpected response of trust. The villagers were so moved by this example of Christian love that a few soon accepted Christ's love for themselves. Years later, when my mother, Granny Brand, was 85, long after my father had died, she helped forge a medical breakthrough. She had often treated gross abscesses on the legs of mountain people by draining the pus and excising a long, thin guinea worm. Distressed by the frequency of these abscesses, she studied the problem and learned that the worm's life cycle included a larval stage spent in water. If she could break that cycle, she would eradicate the worm. Knowing the people's habits well, she quickly deduced that waiting in water was probably the means of transmission. Cashing in on the trust and love she had built up with through decades of personal ministry, she rode her horse from village to village to village. Remember, she was 85 years old. Urging the people to build stone walls around their shallow wells and to prevent foot contact with the water. In a few years, this old lady had single-handedly caused the eradication of all such worms and their resulting abscesses in two mountain ranges. Then he says, I wonder how effective Granny Bran would have been had she dropped leaflets from an airplane explaining the need for stone walls around wells. (laughs) (laughs) You know, in Hebrews 4.15 it says, we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses. Jesus experienced our weaknesses. God dwelt with among us and he touched us and touched and was touched by us and fully identified with our pain. And that is part and parcel of the uniqueness of Christianity, that we touch people. Hinduism is the most cruelly neglectful of all religious systems in the world. Its caste forbid that anyone of a certain caste can ever touch anyone of another caste. And you'll find similar patterns of behavior among other major world religions, but Christianity's not so. Christianity is the only religion that has ever founded hospitals and sent medical missionaries to those who were hurting, not only with healing, but also with a proclamation of the gospel. Lincoln Nelson and his wife, Lenore, spent over 40 years in the Philippines as medical missionaries. They were Marsha's uncle and aunt. Uh, uncle Link was a surgeon, aunt Lenore, was a nurse and they both could have stayed here in the United States and lived extremely comfortable lives of wealth but they went to the Philippines where they spent every week flying to various islands performing surgery on four different hospitals Lenora would work to uh, triage patients and then assist Link as he performed surgery they founded one hospital and helped start two more and as a part of their ministry both of them would share the gospel with those they were treating leading many to faith in Christ Link was so well loved by the Filipino people that in 1974, he as an American missionary doctor was inducted into the Philippine College of Surgeons. Uh, They they only left the Philippines because they had to come home and care for their aged parents. And while they were home during that time, uh, Link wrote a book about their life of medical missionary service titled With Scalpel and the Sword. Um, And after their parents died, he called up the mission board and said, where do you need us? and uh, so they spent the next several years traveling around the world relieving other medical missionary doctors in the hospitals in India, Bangladesh, and Africa so that those doctors could come home on furlough. Now why did they do that? They did it because they looked at Jesus and they saw his example of loving and touching people who were sick and hurting and they loved Jesus more than they loved the comforts and material possessions of this life and they saw that Jesus willingly touched those who were diseased and hurting and he healed them and they wanted to do the same. Don't think well Bruce I'm not a doctor or a nurse or a physician's assistant I can't go around providing medical attention to the sick and dying. No but you can still show them that same sympathetic love that reaches out and touches them and tells them how much you care and how much Jesus cares. I believe we are called to do that because the hurting sickly person sees you demonstrate that kind of compassion and love for them and they are more willing to listen to you when you share the good news of the saving gospel of Jesus Christ with them. So what was the ministry of Jesus? It was teaching, expository teaching. It was preaching, proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, and it was healing people with the tenderness of his care that manifested the heart of God. And we will stop there because our time is up and we have to go. But before we go, are there any questions or comments there? Yes. Pardon. What oh, was the Nehemiah scripture? The first. Okay. okay. Did somebody write it down? So Wait. Eight, seven, and eight. Thank you. Okay. All right. Anything else? Okay. And if you want that book. With scalpel and the sword, it's still available on Amazon. I found it. I found it. So, all right. Marsha has a copy too, obviously. So, all right. Frank, please close us with prayer.